Hello guys, it's the Scene World Podcast. Here we go again. Ooh, Great. Wow. Nice to have you here, Ashay. Yeah, I dropped the it. microphone. Holy crap, you have to yeah, do that again. Breaking things and just making yeah. a mess. Oh, Jesus. What's going on here? Ah, oh, wait, oh, wait a second. You're just breaking the whole damn place. <laughs> no. Okay. Breaking the joint. Okay, so try again. I think we should keep that in. I, I enjoyed that. Okay, so um, so in a, in a bit, I'm talking to Julia Karine Ditar from Atame, um, who is um, a game designer and developer for indie games, and um, she and her team actually worked on Mushroom 11, which is going to come out in five days. We looked at Mushroom 11, a preview of that, when you went to Gamescom. Exactly. So we, we actually spoke, well, Jörg, I, I missed this one. I had some stuff I had to take care of. But, but Jörg spoke to one of, the, one of the developers of the game. So we've got a pretty long interview uh, from him. And we'll be cutting that shortly. Yeah, yeah. But before, we should talk about the news. And one of such news would be that um, we got quite some feedback from the Commodore interview that we did in the last podcast episode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, with Paolo Bessa and Massimo Conigliani. Conigliani. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm sticking to anyway. Yeah. And yeah, there, there was quite a response to it. Uh, part of that response was 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 complaining about our audio quality, and I want to address that briefly, because we do these these interviews over Skype for the most part, and and we are kind of at the we're at the um, the mercy of what people are using. Now I'm using a fairly you can see it right there. It's a it's a relatively professional microphone it's it's professional if you don't have a lot of money which is me Jorg is also using you know a re relatively professional podcasting microphone but we can't count on everybody else that we're going to talk to to be using high quality equipment so sometimes the audio quality of the people that we're talking to sucks and there and we I, you know in the, especially in the case of an audio podcast I do the best that I can to clean up a lot of the audio um, with this one, we did address it in the beginning because there was some. What was happening was that um, their computer, uh, Paolo's computer. No, no, no. Actually, it was Massimo's, I believe. What um, Massimo's? Um, he was in a yeah. big room, and there was a lot of echo. And whenever one of us would talk, his computer microphone would pick up the audio. He wasn't. I guess he wasn't using headphones or something. And we addressed it a couple of times, and we restarted and. The audio quality would be good, and then it would just kind of creep back. And so, I ended up trying to fix it in fix it in post, as they say, and it ended up muffling a lot of the audio. But you know, I didn't think it was so. I didn't think it was unlistenable. Um, you know, we did what we could to to clear it up, and that's and that's the best we could get it. And and I wasn't going to call them up and ask them to repeat everything they said. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually true. Yeah, you you cannot really depend on other people using good equipment. Yeah, mm. that's quite interesting. There are, and there yeah. are some podcasters that really go to to great lengths to make sure that everything is perfect, and they'll have 
they'll have the people that they're interviewing also record the audio so that they can get a a you know perfect feed from them and everything and a I'm local gonna, a local copy right, yeah right yeah and i'm not gonna do that i you know there's if people are taking the time to talk to us i'm not gonna require them to install software to record their own version of the audio so that i you know it, that's just just way more work than well than the difference here is the difference here is between our podcast and other podcasts is we are interviewing real celebrities that have mm -hmm. spare time and it's really really what people don't actually know because this is what what we are doing behind the scenes it's very very hard to even get the time to talk to Dutch people you know right right and sometimes you really have a very very big time constraint and it's hard enough to catch those people and find a suitable time. I mean, we were discussing with um, um, with um, Charles Martinet for four weeks until we right. got an appointment where he has like almost unlimited time to talk to us. So. Right, right. He, he actually cut off uh, another meeting thing, you know, an autograph signing or something he was yeah. doing to talk to us. Yeah. And also, I mean, we've, you and I both have full-time jobs that we that we do and yeah. we're we're nowhere near each other where he's in york's in germany i'm in in on the east coast of the u.s so so our times are not even this the same i mean he just got it's like midnight by him and it's like 4 p.m here so i mean there's no you know it's just trying to schedule things in which he and i are both around is yeah. hard enough as it is and then we've yeah. got to kind of mix everybody else into it so i'm not going to really put too many conditions or yeah. require people to do too much yeah. to talk to us you yeah. know i mean that's so you know yeah. so sometimes the audio quality isn't the best from people but you know again it's it's either getting those people in the first place or nothing at all right right so we had some echo at 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 the at the end and we had some sound issues in there or or for example with um with the peruvian interview Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. we did with Lobsang Alvitas. Yeah. He has a very, yeah. very bad Skype, um, a very, very bad internet connection there in Peru because mm -hmm. internet in Peru is crazily expansive. And, you know, so, yeah, so we have to really cope with what we have. So, yeah. But I That's guess. Such is the, yeah. the, the way it works. But yeah. so we, we, we got feedback about the Commodore interview. And so, what was that feedback aside from complaining about our. our audio quality well the feedback was that it's very interesting because now it's clear that you actually can do anything with the phone except you cannot put a custom rom on it because there were a lot of rumors you know like um that you can do this or that with the phone or that it would just be um that chinese phone and mm -hmm. and nothing else and they explained in the interview that a lot of um improvements were done for example they don't they don't really use the kick rom um copyright thingy that would be required for the amiga but they use a different implementation mm -hmm. that isn't 100 percent compatible to all games but it's without any um, copyright infringements and they also told us they got a special keyboard involved so and and that's a good thing because people were worried that a lot of those software on the phone used would 
infrared copyright and trademarks and they made clear that they 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 resolved the issue about that so it will be very interesting to see the phone here if the hardware is really so much different and if the software really is what they promised you know yeah. Well, again, we're supposed to be getting demo units when these release, and I don't, I'm don't. i not sure when they're going to release. Though they said October. It's at, at this point, it's not quite halfway through October, so we've still got plenty of time left. Hopefully we see something soon. I, I would be, I'd be interested to check it out. Um, and it's interesting because on the homepage they said like 60 days, you know, it's delivery time, but people were impatient. Actually, people, some people canceled their orders, you know. Really? But... Well, you know, they were like paying in July and still didn't receive it or something from what I read. But hey, I mean, in a new pro in a new product area with a new company, basically, you can expect delays. It's not yeah, something and, I'm really worried about. Right, and it's it's really a big thing to also recognize that that while they're called Commodore, it's really not it's not Commodore that you know made the c64 or or anything it's it's kind of an homage to that company but they're not trying to be commodore with it so i mean a lot of these people are automatically jumping on the you know the negative side of this and trying to compare them with stuff and really kind of being um unreasonable uh, you know it, you really have to look at it as in this is a new company making a cell phone and really kind of suspend your display don't even think about the commodore thing you know just you know just just think of it as like you know massimo's phone company and 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 go with there you know because that's really it, it's a new company making a new product and <laughs> it's you know there may be delays there may be issues going down the road but you know that that's to be said for anything any company yeah but um on the other hand of course we are all clear that it, it it is a reason that there is commodore i mean it instantly gives you press coverage oh yeah if you absolutely mentioned, uh, absolutely yeah most of it negative but it gives you <laughs> gives you press gives you uh, attention yeah and in the interview you heard it was more like Jörg was the good cop and ha was the bad cop <laughs> and <laughs> they trying to convince ha to turn into a good cop <laughs> or something it's uh, really uh, a really lot of pressure was was put on them and we really didn't leave out all the nasty uncomfortable questions you know yeah, no, we, we kept everything right as it was, and, and, you know, that's, that's, I think that we represented everything as honestly as, as, I mean, they, they were happy with it, you know, yeah. they, they didn't, they didn't complain about, you know, the release or anything, and, and, and that's, you know, and I don't know what people thought about our coverage of it, aside from the audio quality, but, I mean, I, I, I think we presented it fairly, and, yeah. Well, what what I basically like also in the interview that I do with Sky Video interviews is, is and also the podcast that we do is that we put things right. You know, for example, it wasn't William Shatner that um, gave the the inspiration for the mobile phone. It was Dick Tracy. Just an example, you know. And yeah. it's the same here with the phone. You know, they are not really they're not really like hitting on the copyright for the emulators. Right. which is something 
everybody was like, oh, you know, and that one company, they even made a statement like, oh, we didn't give them the permission, but they are not even using their software. So, right, right. What people forget here is that pa Paolo Besser is a known uh, Amiga developer um, of Amiga software in the Amiga scene. So he, you can bet that he knows what he's doing. Hopefully, right. you know. Oh, yeah, well, and if not, then you know that'll come out down the road, and and we'll we'll find out about it. But... Yeah, because um, I you can bet that we will look at the review units very closely, mm -hmm. and see if all the claims are coming true. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to put up a video when we do that. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, speaking speaking about reviews, just to switch to the other topic is, um. Yeah, I I had the chance to to finally review um, Pro Evolution Soccer mm -hmm. 16 and FIFA 16, and uh, I totally suck at video games playing except for racing games. It's been a long time since I've played anything like that. I I, I used uh, to play FIFA and NHL on PlayStation years ago, yeah. but it's been been a long time since. My my <laughs> my version was 1997. So yeah, my yeah. last PC version. I, th I think mine was was O four. Oh, so yeah. So anyway, so we're both pretty well out of practice. Yeah. So what what I have actually got is the two games. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And Spectacles so on here. Yeah. Look, look at it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep, so. Yep, yep. I got the box version and AJ got a review code for uh, from Konami f for Steam. Yep. So, um, so what what can we say about the games? Actually, I played um, Pro Evolution Soccer 2014 before, and as I said, I played FIFA One O Seven and other mm -hmm. FIFA versions before. And um, so the interesting thing here is, let's talk about FIFA first because we did the interview um, right. at Gamescom, and it's really interesting because if you compare the both games, FIFA 16 is more like realistic, and mm -hmm. it's also giving you a helping hand. We were we were um, talking to Matthew McCain, you know, from uh, FIFA Soccer Canada, and he told us in the interview that you have a lot of new playing experience. So what they have is a lot of assistance. So right. you know, when when I play when I play a soccer game, I usually want you know I want to control what the player that actually. Um, is doing so I play FIFA 16 and then I see okay now another guy from my team is cl is closer to the ball so let's switch to him and then I figure out okay I can't do that because the computer is deciding for me so mm. it decided that I would not have enough time to run for the ball if I if I choose that other guy because probably he's slower or something right, right and then he decides okay you you keep with the guy that you have and a few other a few other options but that is something they offer you in the new version and that is something uh, matthew mccain um 
announced too in the interview that they have a new player experience because normally uh, FIFA 16 is something like this way you play it for the first time second time third time and you lose because the controls are so complex and the combinations are so complex it's incredibly um, exhausting to get a uh, winning experience but right. here actually you have like four buttons you have like short pass long pass short kick long kick and um, and all the combinations but you don't need that because you have the systems that decide to you what's the best way of catching the ball or you know so the thing is I had an instant success um, I I got a, tr a draw of 2-2 two -two between me and the computer and yeah. that was a women women's team so <laughs> i played priscil against germany and um i was priscil and i didn't, oh, win. You didn't take germany no oh. i i didn't lose and i didn't win either so that was that was qu quite interesting that the first time i play a new fifa soccer game and i don't lose instantly <laughs> so that made me very happy and um, from the graphics it was very realistic and you could choose um, well you could see the different stadiums and yeah so very nice i actually used the english commentary because we are doing this thing here in english right. and personally everything i do in my life is english mostly so i thought english fits me well that was a quite nice experience so then i switched to pro evolution soccer 16 and here the thing is that Pro Evolution Soccer 16 is more like an arcade soccer. Is it? Yeah. So it's more like old football games you can imagine from the Amiga. Well, I noticed that it had pretty low uh, graphics requirements. So. Yeah, but, but the, the graphic quality is the same with FIFA 16. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not worse, not better. So even the stadiums and the rain... And all the other stuff, it's looking exactly like you are having a similar game. So it, even the commentary in English was quite good in oh. both games. So not not so much difference from the graphic quality. The difference maybe is that you can maybe put Pro Evolution Soccer on lower hardware, yeah. so it it's it scales down the graphics, but. Um, I got a quite potential computer, so I didn't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I played Pro Evolution Soccer and I felt at home because I could choose who to s choose. So of course you can edit the settings in FIFA 16, but I played both games with the default settings. Because right. what is what you do? What is that thing you do when you buy a game the first time? Use the default settings and you just say "quick match" and that's it. What I did, so so I gave all both games the same chance. So actually, I got Pro Evolution Soccer 16, and um, even though it's more arcade-ish, because you can, you know, you can actually select your your player you have more control but that also means you can m make more mistakes so I instantly got a yellow card because I cut somebody's leg you know uh -huh. and on FIFA 16 in the default settings it would be harder because the computer is controlling you you know it's yeah. helping you giving you assistance so 
Yeah, so the promise from Matthew McKay that FIFA 16 would be easier for the new players is true. The stadiums are very realistic, that's true too. And the women implementation is just beautiful, you know. You can read interviews with FIFA 16 designers that they actually did an experiment and put a woman's hat, a women's hat on a male body and that looked awful. So, yeah. So that was really, really um, nice. So in the result, I lost my Pro Evolution Soccer 16 match because I didn't get any assistant. But interesting thing is the default controllers were the same, same keys for um, for pass and shoot. So I didn't yeah. have to relearn all the controls. So basically, I think that's pretty much. I think those are kind of universal controls for all sports games. I think that yeah. uh, probably yeah. NHL uses the same pass. Yeah. And so, so I actually used my uh, Xbox 360 controller, a 360 nice, controller. Nice. Yeah, I've got my. Uh, Generic Logitech. Oh, gamepad. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, very nice games. So, which one is better? Which one is worse? If you expect more to have control yourself, less realistic and more fast fun, then go for Pro Evolution Soccer 16. If you want it more realistic and if you want to play women's soccer and you are not good. You are not a really, um, you know, skilled video game player when it comes to football, and you want to try something new out. Then get FIFA 16. So basically, all the things that Matthew McCain promised in his interview with us, it all came true. So they didn't make any fa false promises. Okay. That's that's quite good. On the on the. On the side to mention here about copy protection is uh, FIFA 16 uses the very, very uh, negatively taken Orion client software, which what, what is it? Or, or, Orion, 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 oh, sorry. Okay, so I repeat that. So FIFA is actually using the very, very badly taken um, Orion client, which they bought the trademark of the Orion um, label that was used for Ring Commander back in the days, mm. and they made a, a client for it. Wait, wait, Orion or Origin? Oh, sorry, Origin. Okay, so yeah, Origin, Origin Systems made Wing Commander. Okay, right. it was Origin. Okay, so n take number three. So, um, as for copy protection, FIFA Soccer is using the very negative, um, negatively taken copy protection. Uh, the client, the online client, Orion. Origin. Ah. <laughs> okay. So, as for copy protection, for FIFA Soccer 16, use the very negatively taken um, online client Origin to register online, and um, I actually couldn't play it any second before the release date. While PES Pro Evolution Soccer 2016 uses Steam, mm. which, which, as we know, has a very good reputation in the community for being awesome, and I have to say I kind of like it because 
I can play a game on my laptop if I'm on the go and I don't have to reinstall everything. I just install Steam and it's re-downloading the data and I don't have to put in the DVD anymore to play it. Not like in the old days where you had to put in the DVD each time though you can check yeah. that you have original. Yeah. That's quite nice. So both games are pretty cool. Both games have similar graphics, so it's really the playability that's the difference. Cool. What do you prefer? Um, I prefer more control over it myself. Even if I make terrible moves or, or bad strategy with the game, I prefer to be able to make my own bad strategy. But as I said, if I maybe fiddled with the options in FIFA, so yeah, maybe you, I would you have... Probably, you could probably set FIFA to, to work the way you wanted it to. Yeah. But the default settings are like that. Yeah. I have to say, I, I like both. And um, I was always more a bit of a FIFA, six, uh, FIFA fan more than a Pro Evolution well, fan. Well, you know, EA has the... They've kind of got the, the market on, on that. They've been making pretty much the official sp sports games for, you know, 15, 20 years now. You know, I mean, starting with, you know, FIFA... 95 and, and NHL 95 and all that on, on, on what was that on like uh, uh, Genesis, Sega Genesis I mean they've been making these sports games for god knows how long so 21 years yeah yeah so I mean that's so yeah I mean that's that's the sort of thing that, that yeah you do start to I've always preferred the EA sports to the other ones that I've I've seen you know there was I'm more of a hockey guy than a soccer guy, but there was, um, they made NHL throughout the years, and there's been other ones from uh, different companies, and I can't remember what any of them are, but none of them were quite, were anywhere near as good as the, the EA Sports versions, as far as I, you know, in, in my experience, but, but, you know, we're getting to a point where, you know, some of them could be, and we'll see when we play. Pro Evolution Soccer, we'll, we'll find out and we'll take a look at how it is and we'll see, you know, yeah. we'll see how it works. Well, the thing here is um, Konami and EA's, EA Electronic Arts are both traditional companies. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, uh, EA was founded in 86 or something, or maybe even earlier, 84. Don't yeah, I yeah, keep yeah. forgetting, I keep forgetting that. And Konami is around there since forever, so... It's really well, like Electronic Arts is one of the early ones, and they were one of the ones that really kind of they jumped up and and uh, they used to treat their developers like rock stars. You know, you, you they they were made in '82. Oh, great! Okay. You know, they used to when you'd get your games, they would come in these these like almost like a record case, and then you'd have the developers would be you know their pictures would be inside, and I mean they really packaged these things like they were. Like like it was, you know, rock music. Okay, so I got the numbers. EA, as I said, 82. And Konami was 1969. Jeez. Yeah. So, Konami is actually around forever. Yeah. So anyway, it's really two giants of um, video game companies trying to compete compete against each other and you cannot really expect like too much of a quality difference between the two right. products seriously yeah. they both know what they are doing they are long enough in the business no. yeah 
I didn't expect like, whoa, this is like so much better than the other one. Right. Yeah, no, that's probably on par. Yeah. Yeah, so um that's about that. So what what else we got so far? Yes, on on on, on this Tuesday Thursday. On this Thursday I was um on a press conference with Joe Lewandowski. Right. And uh, Joe Lewandowski he did the dig digging for the ET cartridges. Uh-huh. In the desert of New Mexico, USA, last year, and he held um, a conference and um, did a presentation about the experience. So, what are what? What's the uh, final word on that? Now that they've uh, he's done his press conference and what? What's the final word on that? He said that um, he is amazed by how many people. So they think it's such an important thing because he's not a gamer himself. Some people consider him a celebrity, but he doesn't think himself he is. He just works in the waste company and he happened to own the company that actually was it digging down in the in the wasteland. Right. And um, yeah, so that is why he knew that it was really true and not a myth. And what he actually did is he he didn't keep any of those himself. All mm -hmm. of the cartridges went to museums, or he he put it on eBay and sold it for the for the for the uh, country for the city. Well, the city got most of the of the um, money, mm -hmm. and of course. Um, yeah, some collectors. So that means all of all of those money um, went to back to the people, okay. and he didn't put anything on his own pocket. My question is, what is the why? You know, okay, so we've we've the big thing, the big story with it is the the ET being buried in the desert, and that's really you know it's become one of these these urban legend things that everyone is really obsessed with and and my question is really who cares it's it wasn't the worst game in the world it wasn't the best game in the world i mean it certainly wasn't a great game but and 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 from what i gather they dumped way more games than just et they did other games too yeah and consoles right. too right yeah. this was the video game crash you know this was it was so that the marketplace was so saturated with games that that no one was buying anything you know it was it was such a mess mm. and um they they got rid of a bunch of games there and some for some you know i mean i don't know i don't i don't it doesn't strike me as that interesting or that big a deal that games were buried in a landfill in a desert yeah we will we will put a uh, link to the issue where they did an interview with David Crane, who okay. was co-founder of Activision. He he actually is held himself responsible for the video game crash. I know. Yeah. I, yeah. That's that was a fun interview. So we will link to that so people can check it out. Yep. Will be fun to read. So it isn't the first time that Scene World covers um, the Atari topic, but it's the first time that. Scene World as a magazine was invited 
um, to a press conference. Yeah. And uh, in the Frankfurt Film Museum, and it was very nice because all the other people were there, you know, in their um, very suits and dress and business-like, and I was there with my SeaWorld pullover, you know. Yeah. And he was okay. There's somebody from the gaming area. That's yeah. good. That's good. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. And the last bit of news I have is actually I just returned today from the 30 years Amiga anniversary meeting right. in um in Neuss in the near from Düsseldorf. Cutting that out will us spare like 10 minutes. Yeah. Because of the long break. And um it was very nice. I met a lot of nice people like RJ Michael and Dave Haney that we interviewed a long time ago. So I only knew before from Facebook and uh, Skype. And yeah. so, yeah. And Sven Fersing, our friend Sven, the yeah, Retro Hunter. Yeah. yeah, he made some announcements. They started yeah. a new label called Cinemaware Retro. Yes. Yeah, I see. And it offers, starting next February, mm -hmm. a re-release of their classic gamings in an extended collector's cut edition, they call it. And yeah, that okay. means you get all the versions of the game ever released on any system, and it will be playing on your Amiga CD32 or PC with emulators. So you okay. actually can play the games on a real Amiga 2. So the CD will be multi-system compatible. That's and they, they from when we talked to Sven, when we spoke to him, um, they built their own emulators for each of these things. So yeah. so what, what, what this is saying is that you can take this CD or DVD and you can put it into your PC and you can play the Amiga version or the Nintendo version or whatever it is in in the in that native it, it, in an emulated version of that original version of the yeah. that is a terrible sentence but we'll leave it in because it's there okay yeah that's actually true and they will even include the Amiga ADF files mm -hmm. so you can even make your own 3.5 inch discs if you like to <laughs> so yeah that's pretty neat since we're on video i should show you what i what i just picked up the other day wow Original and unadulterated. Wow, Maxwell yeah. discs. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And evil double, double density. Double sided, double density. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> found it in the attic or something. No, I found it in a store. Whoa. Yeah. Got a ton of them now. Uh, and, and you know, I pick it up because you know, I I, I still am a, a C64 guy at heart, and so I'm like, you know. These discs would be really useful if I actually had something to something to hook it up with. 
Depends on whom you use it with. Ah, you could you could get a new um, equipment from eBay. Well, you know that's that's the thing. I've got I have a 128. I have a flat 128 that I've had for a while. Um, someone sent it to me a couple of years back, and I have not used it because I don't have a disk drive anymore. You can get a disk and drive. I could get a disk drive, but the thing is that that Commodore disk drives are they don't age well. It depends. The 1541-2 aged as well. The, the 1541-2 was the first drive that I had. It was when I got my, my C64 at 86, it was with the 1541-2. And out of all the drives that I had, that was the only one that went bad. Okay. Because it's, it's belt-driven, and it's a real weak belt. Hmm. No, mine worked fine, actually. Oh. Not See, all my, of them... The big old, the big old brown 1541... With that was like you know the old Alps one with the with that thing lasted forever. Although but that I have, I was, that I, mostly fails because of power supply overheating because it's the same case. Yeah, well that thing worked well. What I would have to do is I'd have to take the top case off it and I'd have to put a weight on the drive head. And that's the Ew. only way it would read discs after a while. Like you had to push down on the drive head on the on the disc. You know, it was, my 1571 never went bad, and my 1581 never went bad, but the 1541 and the 412 were just nothing but headaches the entire time that I ever had them. Yeah, but you are and, an exception here. Seriously. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and this was was quite a few years ago now, and I'm, th I'm just thinking, you know, well, that was 15 years ago when my drives were going bad, and any drive that is available out there now is that age plus 15 at least uh, uh, so the, i mean uh, uh no you know it's just it no. just strikes me as as i don't know just just i feel like like you see the stuff online on ebay and, the, and and it doesn't go for that cheap really you know the, the drives go for a decent chunk of money and it's like i don't want to i don't want to invest however much they're asking when there's a good chance that it not gonna work. No, that's not true. That's not true. Most most drives work well. I have tons of them, and they all work still. Well, send me one. The problem is it's um, <laughs> 220 volts. That's the problem. Doesn't have that switch on the back. Nope. Really? Nope. Hmm. Just for drive letter changing. Nothing else. Well, I can get a power supply, the proper size power supply from here, and just stick it in there. But um. But the drives are not the issue, and I, ca I can I can give you an address where you can get one from Germany, mm. um, with warranty for one year. So, because there are some commercial sellers actually selling it well. Yeah, yeah. And the shipping is not too expensive if you make it clever. So, <laughs> I will send you a URL. You can talk to some people. Should okay. should work. Yeah. And the other thing that Sven did is releasing Robin Hood, Defender of the Crown, mm -hmm. um, original music score CDs for free. So if you were... Oh, it's a, it's a music CD? Yeah. I put on my glasses like I can actually see it. I've got... This window behind me makes a glare. I can see nothing. So I'm just pretending like I can actually see what I'm looking at. Wow, nice. <laughs> Ah, oh, yes, yes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. totally. So, if, if you weren't at noise today, you really missed out. Yeah. Cool, have you, have you given it a listen yet? 
No. And you know, and with indie games too, is that we don't we don't cover all that much as far as you know. We we've talked to 3D Realms and Cinemaware and um, EA Sports and a bunch of other companies now, and you know they a lot of a lot of times we mention they or they talk about indie games, but we never really got into indie games. We we have established that that AAA games. Which is a term I hear people saying over and over and over again, which I've never heard until we started this podcast. I've never heard of a triple A game. But thanks to Frederick Schreiber. Yeah. Now it's, yeah. Uh... <laughs> but you know, we we've we've we hear about that and we and and we've learned or I've learned rather that, that games are hugely expensive to make. And you know, and, and we see this with Cinemaware with yeah. you know, they met their Kickstarter goal and and yet we're still you know, we're having some difficulty with this because, in reality, you know, to make a game of this caliber, you need a lot more than just what they got in the Kickstarter. And you know, we've spoken to you know Frederick Schreiber. You know, uh, we're talking about the the millions of dollars that it takes to make a real solid AAA game. And but we haven't really touched too much on the indie developers. You know, the the ones that are doing this with three or four people or you know, just smaller groups for a lot less money, but you know, that that are still making something that that is is relevant and interesting. So it's really cool to be able to kind of pop into that that realm a little bit. Yeah, and 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 talk about it and see what the what the situation is there. I I'm mean, kind of bummed that I missed it. Yeah, I mean, um, even Chris Hulsbeck in our first interview uh, with him for the museum. He made the music for the Gianna Sisters, you know, mm -hmm. the reboot, and that was for Black Forest Games, which yeah, is also yeah. indie development mm -hmm. studio. And now they are big because they are like the most known indie development studio, just because yeah. they did Gianna Sisters, and they got Chris Hulspeck to make the music, you know. Gianna Sisters, God, that game. Yeah, I the brothers are history. I hate that game so much. I didn't like it either, but the music was cool. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, the music was good. But that's, you know, we should really cover the fact that the Commodore 64, we, you know, both of us being from the C64 background, the Commodore 64 had a lot of stuff going for it. Games were not one of those things. The, there were some good games for the C64. Don't, there, um, uh, uh, Space Rogue, Sentinel Worlds, um, Test you know, Drive, te awesome, uh, awesome. Um, no. Ah, uh, you see, that's a different taste then. Or Turbo Outrun was really very good. Um, Turbo Outrun was okay. Test Drive was like watching paint dry. Test ah. Drive was like. Test but, drive was slow. On the on the Amiga test drive was good. If you got a C sixty four with an accelerator, test drive was good. Yeah, if that's I what I wanted to say. Super yeah. CPU test drive. Right, exactly. Super well, CPU. That's but that's that's not that's not what most people have. And the same thing with Flight Simulator. Flight Simulator two was a good game, yeah. and and it was very accurate, and and as as someone with some flight background, you know, Flight Simulator was an accurate game. It it, it took a lot of stuff. And it accurately represented it on screen. It was like watching paint dry, because yeah. uh, it was it was like, a lot it was a lot slower than test drive. You cannot right, compare yeah. test drive. Yeah, and and one one aspect in which 
in which the C64 especially did not do well in was platform games. Platform games on the C64 were, uh, were, were the Gianna sisters, or... or uh, Mayhem in Motherland was very good. Mayhem in Motherland was very good. I, 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 honestly, I had never played that game. That was very good. That was like um, like Super Mario World on the Super NES. Even had the same graphics quality. It was amazing. See, the pro the problem with most games like that is that there's no is that that you're stuck with one fire button, and so your 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 brain wants to use the fire button to jump, but you can't do that because there's only one button. So your your fire button is shoot or whatever else, and then you have to push up on the joystick to jump. We shouldn't really... we shouldn't forget Terrican. That was a hit too. I didn't play that either. So you missed but, all the all the good games. Yeah, I missed the that's, good ones. I got that's, all the bad. That's not that's not the fault of the Commodore 64. Well, that's I know it's not, but, personal... but, but uh, there's a vast number Unlike. of games that just use. And it's not even the the fault of the game specifically because there were some like um, um, there was a game Epsilon Four, I believe, and I don't remember who did it. Or there was another one. Um, I can't remember what the name of it was. It was it was a weird. It was a weird game with a little guy who was just a head with feet. And Jumpman? No, no, Jumpman was a good game. Uh, but no, this was I, I, I don't. It was a Fred or something. I don't. I don't know what the hell it was called. But there were a lot of these games that had good graphics and good music and and a lot of stuff. But then it was hampered by the fact that you're pushing up on a joystick to jump, and it just feels really uncomfortable and unintuitive. And it's the control that messes up the game more than anything else. Uh, that didn't really bother me. I got used to that. That, that bothered me a lot, because I was a console guy with the platformer, so I was used to... In fact, we used to take the, our Sega controllers, the Sega Master System, and plug them in and use them for the 64, because it made things feel a lot better to use a gamepad instead of a joystick. But it only picked up that one, that one button, and that's that really messed you up because the button, yeah. so often the button did not, in Jumpman Junior. and Jumpman, the button was jump. That's how it should be. But in everything else, it was like you had to like go to the left, and then like also push up on the joystick, and then you would jump. But it's like you want to just push the the button to jump, and, and it just. Ugh. I mean, I mean, how how else would it be possible? I mean, you couldn't realize it like. Press I up to pr to press fire, you know. That's... I coded a, or I, actually, I didn't code a game, but I, I, well, yeah, I did. It was a, it was a, I made a crappy game just as a proof of concept of a game, and what I did was, you used your joystick to walk around, but you would have a keyboard button, that you would press to jump. So you'd use your right hand for your key for your joystick, and you'd use a left hand on the keyboard, and you'd hit that button when you wanted to jump. That way, it gave you an extra button. It just wasn't on the joystick. There actually was a joystick with a second button, and that was coming with the C64GS, the game system. Mm. And that had uh, HQ2, and that had a second button, because I own that joystick. And that's okay. the only joystick and the only game that supported thought, a second button. I thought, though, that the 64 it wasn't wired for a second button. It was. It was? Yeah. The joystick well, just didn't uh, offer it. Well, that's a terrible... That's a terrible concept. That's a terrible idea. Why, why have, why wire it for a second button? And you know, now I'm thinking about it because I had a two-button mouse. So why the hell wouldn't you have a two-button joystick? I know. I had Geos oh. and had two buttons, left yeah. and right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And you even, 
and they even made it backwards that way that you even could get analog joysticks and connect it because pedals same technology like analog joysticks but no company ever manufactured one so actually it would have been possible yeah pedals yes but not uh, not analog joysticks right right for the commodore or for the amiga or the terry none of them ever existed so yeah so there was no analog joystick with a Oh, yeah, sub 15 right. connector yeah, right. that you could buy but technically it was possible because Commodore made it that way that you could yeah. even get an analog joystick connected to it so technically it would have been possible to make racing games where you sit inside the car steering a lot easier yes but instead you did like I had I had the um what what was it it was a it was a a, a, a a steering flight yoke. I have um, the same thing. Do you? Yeah. And I thought that, that would be great when I bought it, and then I played it. I used it, and it was the worst thing ever because because it wasn't it wasn't analog. You know, you you look at it and you think if I turn it this way, if I turn it more, that'll no. make it turn more. It doesn't. No. You, you have to do it like. Yeah, you turn it left and you're going left. You turn it right and you're going right. It's like it's it's straight left straight right there's yeah. no turning it more yeah. doesn't make you turn and more. if you want if you want to accelerate you have to put it like yeah uh-huh right right yeah, yeah. that it, was it, awful yeah 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 that was not well implemented at all that was that was such a but but i got thing. but i got three of those foot pedals because i got them for five bucks per per unit and that was pretty neat so you had and, like and, and again you know pedal, it's a cool pedals. idea but you know you're playing a, a driving game you, you touch the gas pedal and you're on full throttle because it's either full throttle or not. Yeah. <laughs> there's no. But there's no but I did that. I played. I I still have those three things and that's pretty much fun because you can you can configure the foot pedals which mm-hmm. control the pedal is doing when you right. press the thing. So you can actually configure it that way that the game is accelerating or braking just like a normal like in right. a normal car. So with the flight stick and the paddles, you can actually make full car controls for the C64. And that was the greatest for me. It wasn't very comfortable, it's badly implemented, but it was possible. See, I I tried, I took a couple of joysticks and I I put them on the floor. I put a joystick on the floor and just kind of put my foot on it to push the, 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 you know, push the stick forward. It didn't quite work so well. I tried. That is why you didn't get the foot pedals. Yeah, no, I, I could never find the foot pedals. I found I found the yoke at like a secondhand store. It was being sold used, so I got it. But the well, they one. they they found they found some like fifteen or so. And so I still got it in original packaging, unused. I was the first one touching those things. What was the What was the name of that yoke? God, I don't have that thing. Anymore. I wish I still had it. I don't right. remember, but when I found when I find it, I will let you know. Ah, uh, that thing was—I I was so jazzed about that, then I brought it home, and it was such a waste. But such you didn't—you didn't bring it back to the store. No, I didn't, because it wasn't like it was—it was used, so you couldn't return it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could give it back to them and I like, could sell it, but I'm not getting my money back. Ah, okay. So, uh, but yeah, right. I just figured I'd keep it and okay. be disappointed. All right. And it squeaked too. That was the worst. You turn the wheel, it was like. It was cheap plastic. I know, I know. Yeah, you always thought like now it's going to break. Yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. But it never did. Yeah. It yeah. never broke. 
Uh, okay. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, yeah. So we wanted to talk about your um, latest game. Actually, I think your your studio is pretty young still, right? Yeah, we were founded in two thousand and eight, um, and the first game I think was Bubbalooba, which was this Facebook multiplayer casual game. Because it was uh, run by uh, Itai and his friend Uri at the time, and they both came out of casual games. And I hadn't joined the company yet. I was working for a casual game studio, so they were doing a lot of casual games. And then uh, they decided to work on Rope Rescue, uh, which is a mobile game, and I helped with the art for that. Um, that came out in 2012. Um, and it was also slightly casual, but it was more like... Uh, hardcore puzzle physics-based game, so it had a lot of like similar elements that Mushroom Eleven would have, like very physics-heavy puzzle games. Um, but we sort of skinned it like a casual game, which was probably not the smartest idea, because people thought like, oh, it'll be a cute little simple easy game, and it was actually this really hard brain t twister. Um, but it did okay, and uh, we learned a lot from that game, like making it like how you know we we didn't know how to make a proper tutorial system at that point when we were making Rope Rescue, and so we learned a lot. And then uh, Itai and I uh, worked on like after we we finished Rope Rescue, we worked on the uh, prototype for Mushroom 11, or what would become Mushroom 11. And uh, I was working full-time at a studio, so I still hadn't joined Untamed, but he worked full-time on Mushroom 11. So, um, I think the name is Untamed, if I pronounce Untamed, it correctly? Yeah. yeah. And that's actually a studio made of um, two couples, actually. Um, I think technically it's just Itai and me um, the in the studio, and then uh, Kara and Simon are working on Mushroom 11 with us, um, uh, you know, just a group of friends working together to make a game, so. Nice. Yeah, I'm just asking because the business card you handed over to me had four names on it, kind yeah. of. So, yeah, so Simon and Kara are working full-time on the game now. Uh, Kara was working in a game studio up until, I think, two weeks ago, so she's newly full-time. But she's been doing the production, like scheduling, you know, sprint planning and, and scrum meetings, and now she's helping me with marketing. So Simon and, and her uh, are going to EGX to show the game for us, uh, while we're going to be in Tokyo. So. But Mushroom yeah. 11 is not so much of a casual game, I guess. It even no, was awarded for, for a Geek Award this year because of the special techniques in the game. And you, you even sent me a press uh, version that, um, that, uh, that we also mentioned in our special Gamescom podcast, so last time. And um, so how did you get the idea of making um, a game like that? Because it's pretty unique. Because actually you have something like your hero is a mushroom and your main tool or actually your your main controlling um, thing is an eraser. Yeah, so the idea came out of a game jam, which is when you try to make a game in 48 hours based on a theme. 
So the theme for the game jam was a snake eating its tail. Um, and that's what gave us the idea. Actually, Ty came up with the idea really soon and was planning to work on it. And I was like, I don't think you can make something like that in 48 hours. And he made up the prototype in eight hours. So we were like, okay, this is, this is cool. And then we, you know, it was very, very simple. It was basically the whole game was just moving the mushroom. It wasn't nearly as uh, finished or at a state where it is now. Um, but we thought it was really cool, and, and it had actually won Best Game Design at NYU, which is the game jam uh, host site that we attended. They have, like, awards every year. So, so we thought that, like, this was, you know, a really, you know, it, there was a seed of something interesting here. And <laughs> I just took it from there. Great. So th this is actually the product that is moving the company from casual games um, to something real. Yeah, I think we always wanted to do like indie games, but it just took us a while, I think, maybe to get out of that comfort zone of like what we thought people like or what just, you know, if you've been making casual games for years, you sort of are like when you sit down and make a game, you have certain uh, assumptions. And I think we always wanted to do something very edgy and very indie, but you know, it took a little bit of guts to be like, okay, no, let's let's do something different. Let's do the game we always wanted to make, and and forget like what we think people will like about it. So actually, moving to indie wasn't planned in the first place. You were mostly like a mobile casual gaming company. No, I think we were always very indie. I mean, we were very small. Uh, even when Untamed was founded, it was just two people. Um, but I just think like our background sort of informed like the visual style or perhaps the game mechanics and it took us a while to to realize we could do other things we could do more edgy and more dark themes and that was just as, as good cool and uh, one thing you are especially proud of is your music because you mentioned that when we were meeting at, at gamescom like a special feature yeah um so Itai and I have always been fans of the Future Sound of London. Um, I grew up on them. I think Itai also grew up listening to them uh, from the early 90s. And funny enough, he, he actually, like, when he was working on the early versions of the game, he was coding to the Future Sound of London. Like, you know, he would sit and play their music and he would, he would code it, and it started to inform kind of the, the feel of the game. And he just thought it would be perfect, but of course they're these, you know, they're really famous band, and, and so we didn't have any, you know, hopes that they would actually like respond to our email, and we were asked them like, oh, can we license your music? So it was quite a shock when they responded, and they were like, sure. We were like, whoa. So that that was like really exciting for us. So let's talk a bit about the uh, mechanics. What what are the main mechanics of the game I mean I guess it's pretty hard for the average gamer to well to imagine how you can use an eraser and a mushroom um, and I think it's it's even pretty hard to kill yourself except if you totally wreath or if you if you fall into lava or, or fire or something yeah um, so the main mechanics of the game is that you always have a certain number of cells in this mushroom organism 
uh, and you can you only delete it. So if you delete on one side, it'll regrow on the other side. And that's basically how you move. You sort of prune it and trim it and split it to solve puzzles. You can never delete your whole mushroom. You'll always go down to one cell, so you don't have to worry about completely like removing yourself when you when you move. Um, but if that one cell or that chunk of mushroom falls into a pit of lava, then of course you die and you respawn. So we have a lot of checkpoints throughout the level, so it's not too punishing if you if you die. Um, you uh, you also have a shifting center of mass, so there's a lot of physics that goes into play. Like you you can't push anything, like you can't slam yourself into a wall. You're gonna grow around that wall, but you have gravity, you have momentum, so you can tumble forward, you can tumble backward. It looks like goo, but it's actually a rigid body, so you can sculpt yourself into like a bridge and support your own weight. So things like that, um, you'll like, use those techniques. And I think that our tutorial system does a good job of you know, trying to teach these things slowly over the course of the level, so that by the time players you know, get halfway through the first level, they have a pretty good understanding of how to move. Because it does, you know, at first it feels kind of unnatural because you're used to being, uh, you know, playing in a platformer where you have direct control over your character. You jump, you move, you run. Um, but actually it's quite a natural instinct to sort of sculpt and move and work with this kind of mushroom. And it just takes a little bit to wrap your head around the fact that you're no, you're not jumping and, and moving or running. You're 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 sort of pruning and encouraging it to to grow in a certain direction. And I, I also noticed you have also some kind of riddles. So you sometimes have to part yourself into two pieces. For example, one piece you put on a switch, so the other one can actually go through the door or something. Yeah. So in some puzzles, you're you'll have to you learn how to split yourself um, and it's really interesting mechanic because it's sort of like teleportation in a way because if you have two different locations of where your mushroom are the cells can grow in any one of those two places so you can use that in certain puzzles like you can fling a little bit of yourself and you may have to sacrifice the huge mushroom behind in order to like fling over a wall or or yeah leave a little bit of mushroom to push on a button to go through the door so there's like really interesting things that you can do with this mechanic that require like you thinking about this in a different way instead of it as a whole unit as a whole bunch of units and you can use that to to solve puzzles I actually wonder what's actually is there a story of that game what what's the goal are you are you trying to escape so kind of. uh, we have a story when we tell it through the background images um, but it's pretty uh, loose we don't try to shove any one story or narrative in players face we just kind of leave crumbs and let them like pick up what happened and like I think what is interesting that comes out of it is that you are not a human and there aren't any humans in this world so the idea of like are you a good fungus are you a bad fungus are you the the cause of all of this destruction are you a result of this is kind of interesting when there's a there's no humans left so what does that even mean if you're good or bad like what is that how does that relate to you as a fungus uh, so those are really interesting and we hope that players will you know come to different ideas of what happened as they play through the level. So you kind of imagine the own background um, history yourself? 
Yeah, we have we have a story that that we're we're telling through these uh, background images. Um, but again, they're they're very uh, they're cut in different areas, and we also like disperse them in not in chronological order. Um, and again, we're not really interested in telling our story to players. We're more interested in how players are going to connect those pieces and come up with their stories. So it's like it's like an interactive. Um, book or something where you just read and imagine the story in your head, yeah. kind of. We try to leave some details in and some details out because players can fill in those details. That's that's pretty pretty interesting. And um, what platforms will you actually support with with the game? Um, so at first we're going to focus on desktops. So we're going to have uh, PC, Mac, and Linux. And it'll be on Steam, GOG, and Humble. Uh, and then probably sometime next year, whether that's spring or summer, uh, we'll port it to tablets and other handhelds like Wii U uh, and uh, PS Vita. So we're, we're working on those, but those will be later. Oh, okay. So you're actually also planning a mobile version for smartphones? Yeah, because uh, the controls work really well with a stylus or a touch. Um, screen so it's just a little bit more complicated to deal with with touch for mobile because we need a left-handed mode and right-handed mode and we need to go through the puzzles with multi-touch and like you know polish stuff up so it's not quite as simple as just porting the desktop version over the mobile but uh, we do feel like it'll be a really good platform for that yes it's interesting because many games nowadays actually are very independent when it comes to the platform um, so I guess you are using you are using a development kit that allows you to port the game to to any platform you like. Yep, we're using Unity like most indie devs are these days. So. Nice, nice. So, so what what else is there planned for the game that is not seen in the press release that you can tell me without well, you know, stepping over your limits. <laughs> I think most of what's in the press kit is there. Um, we're pretty open with everything. Maybe the only one is uh, we do uh, plan on um, translating it to a few interesting languages. So uh, we won't focus on translations right away until you know the first launch is just going to be English. And there's not a lot of words in our game. You, you actually don't have to read a lot of stuff to play it. Um, which is really good, uh, but we do plan on um, releasing it to uh, three indigenous American languages. So that's something I'm personally proud of. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, so that's like the, maybe the only thing that's not in the press kit. But um, I mean, we're gonna translate it to a bunch of languages. But um, those three languages are um, that we're gonna port to are pretty special. So interesting. So it's not not those are not languages that, that a lot of people speak actually, right? No, but I think that's like uh, one of the hopes for me personally is by having it in these languages, people will realize that they are around and that they're cool. Maybe people will try to learn them or at least research them. Also, ah, so you actually also have an educational part. Aspect well, I don't know here. if it's educational because it's like you know, there's not a lot of. Uh, there's not a lot of text in the game, but I mean, maybe. I mean, the point of the game is just to make a great game, but 
I, I think that it's cool that we have the ability to um, add these languages in and, uh, you know, that's just an added tact. Yeah, sure, I guess it, it would be educational. You can learn some, some, some words. Um, so how was it for you actually to be at Gamescom and so on? I don't know, have you, as I said, this is your first game into the indie, not casual game world. I guess it's pretty, pretty common nowadays. I mean, I was at this indie area of Gamescom, it was huge. Yeah, it was a huge a thing. games there. And uh, it was really great meeting all the other teams working on games. And um, one of the things that's really great about the indie scene is that uh, I was by myself running the booth, and you know, uh, both of the people for games next to us, um, they were really helpful in like watching over my booth when I needed a break or you know had to get food or something. So it was it's like a little community of people, and it's just really great um, to be a part of that community. Yeah, it's interesting because me as a gamer growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, we, we never, I, I never remember anything like indie or something. I think it's it's something new that was, well, coming coming up like 10 years ago. And, um, and also it's interesting to see that you can compete against the big studios, you know, that were also at Gamescom and um, so I mean I mean even the big games you know you have on mobile platforms so and, and also it's very different in the working because nowadays the normal well commercial games they have tons of people working on them while mm. you you are saying you you are basically consisting of two people so yeah, there's uh, two full-time and two part-time, so we're very small. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to see the changes in the game industry. You have these, like, mega teams, but we're also, like, influencing each other. Like, I feel like a lot of what indies have done in the last 10 years is, in you know, is inspiring AAA developers. And then, of course, you know, sometimes AAA companies dissolve, and then those people who used to work there start their own indie teams. And, like, so it's, like, this weird cycle of you know, indies crossing over into AAA and AAA crossing over into indies. So it's it's cool to see. So you you don't miss anything working in a small team of, as I said, two full time, two part time. Or uh, I mean, so is it have have you been working for you know commercial big labels before, or have you always been like? small studios? I think it depends on what you think is big. The studio I used to work at had, I think, 50 people, but we usually worked on multiple titles, and those titles consisted of teams that were probably about the same size, four or five, or maybe six or seven people on one title. So um, I guess it was very similar, very like tight-knit, and a lot of open communication with each other, which is good. Um, so I guess it doesn't feel too different. Um, the only thing that feels different is that now that we are our own company, I have to do new things that I'm not used to, like marketing and PR and like some business stuff that I've, you know, as a developer, I've never really had to pay attention to. So those are some cool new challenges for me. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, it feels very similar. And then of course uh, Simon and Kara, I used to work at the same studio with them before, so it almost doesn't. It almost feels like we're like nothing much has changed in a way <laughs> because we're like we've worked on other projects in the past at this other studio, so it um, feels very natural to work with them. That's interesting because I had an interview with um, Dave Lowe before, and and he he was known for um, converting most video game music from arcade games back in the 80s, 90s to the home computers and video game consoles. And he said that back then you, you, you worked on your own stuff, especially in the area of music. And nowadays um, you, you, you have a full team of tons of people working on something. And um, the creativity is sometimes a bit lost, you know, because you are working on, um, on, on franchises, you know, so yeah, like I mean, Batman or whatever, you know, or the next FIFA soccer or, you know. It's when you employ so many people, like it's really expensive to make these games and therefore you have to be sure you're going to make your money back and so that's where you sort of lose the creativity because it's super risky to do something like Mushroom 11 when you have like a hundred people you have to pay their salaries to, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, take really big risks when you're, you have so much overhead. So that's why smaller teams can, can do these things because they're very risky, like, But you know, it's just the four of us, and you know, uh, we can we can afford to take that risk. But anyway, you also need to, to make your, your money, and um, <laughs> yeah, in, in a way, you know, yeah. <laughs> Pardon? I said it's very scary times to be indie. There's a lot of indies trying to do this full time, and it's very hard. And it's it's definitely rewarding, like even if it's not you know, financial success, like making something you really love, like putting your heart into this product is like really exciting. But yeah, it's very scary when you need to, you know, pay the rent. <laughs> And what's your opinion about Kickstarter? Because we spoke to a lot of people in the past who actually went to Kickstarter to, to crowdfund their, their game. So they were, they were neither um, indie, but also not having the financial background to start the project, you know, and also decided to go for Kickstarter to at least get some part of the development um, money there, some, well, some backup money at least. Yeah, I, I don't know, we, we didn't kickstart our game, um, maybe that was a mistake because I feel like Kickstarter is good for you know, building up a community as well, because you, you, it forces you to do a lot of marketing early on. Um, uh, we just never felt like we needed to do Kickstarter. Uh, we're lucky that, um, for one, we're, so we're two married couples, and the two part-time, like me and Kara, we, we help support Simon and Nitai. And then on top of that, we're also indie-funded, which has also really helped to get through you know, us transitioning from full-time to part-time and then putting in an extra effort for marketing and stuff. So we also have that um, helping with us. So we never felt the need to kickstart. Uh, and I've heard a lot of mixed results. Like some people really love Kickstarter because it gives them funding to help them start. And then also it gives them an audience of people who are like 
really excited about the game and then that can feed on like getting more people interested in the game and it could feed on getting you know articles written about it because you're a successful Kickstarter um, so that can really really help and I think it's helped a lot of indie games um, but then there are other people who uh, you know it's a lot of work to put in like a month of like almost full-time work to run a Kickstarter and if it doesn't pan out then it's almost like kind of like a wasted month so I've, I've seen the two two sides of the spectrum where people are like either really for it or, or really against it so I, I don't know I don't have any experience with it <laughs> yeah it's interesting because um, as you said there are a lot of projects that, that had to start a second time or even third time to finally make the funding you know you, you have to be um, very open and you have to prepare what you want to show because people are very skeptical you know and and there are so many projects it's impossible that everybody can um, support everything you know yeah and then also when you are funded you have to take in consideration like how much all those gifts that you promise people will pay back so a lot of times people will make the mistake of having a lot of really cool like you know you know, get a T-shirt for twenty dollars, and and the copy of the game, and this art album, and they like you know get through all of the costs of making those T-shirts, and making those booklets, and making those boxes, and it shipping. ends up consuming all of their yeah, and shipping, and it like consumes all of their Kickstarter. Um, so that's like another big headache I've heard people talk about. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, and and then you also have to keep your your uh, funders updated on everything like you can't just go dark dark for two years which is also good and bad because one it's it's good because it forces you to talk about your game more which makes more buzz which brings more people in it's like again a really good marketing tool to make sure that you're always talking about your game during development but then on the other hand it's just another you know time away from development that you have to put in so did did Gamescom help you in getting your word out and packs, I think? I, I think so. We met a lot of really great people that liked the game. And one cool thing that did happen uh, at PAX was we were doing these speedrunnings and I was posting people's time. And one of the guys I met in Gamescom like, like complained on Twitter that the PAX people weren't fast enough. And then he posted his best time, and I thought that was like super cool. That like there is like these you know two sides of the world, but there are like these contests on like speed running. So that was that was pretty cool. So yeah, I think Gamescom was really helpful for us, and I'm definitely glad I was there. So being an indie development studio now forced you to learn new skills, actually, that that you didn't know before you had, you know. Yeah. Like give, like giving interviews. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and learning how to talk about your game for a long time. Like it's hard to talk about your your game sometimes, and you're sort of forced to, like, hone on your pitch. Like so that that helps a lot. <laughs> so uh, don't you don't you have something in your mind when you when you talk about your game? I mean, I guess at Gamescom after doing it for five days. You, you repeat the same thing every time and then you say, okay, now you know it all by heart? Uh, yeah, I think you, you get you get your pitch down really well and then you're able to like recite that in your sleep. 
<laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I guess um, before before you you went working for them, um, you had other people doing that stuff. Like, oh, I will just yeah. do the code. I think also there's this idea that developers have where they look at people who just do marketing and they're like, what are you doing? You know, like uh, there's this idea that like, what do you know, they, you don't know what the other person does because you don't see their work in development. Like you're not coding, you're not doing art. So what exactly are you doing to contribute? And now that I've been having my marketing hat on, like it's crazy. There's so much work involved in marketing when it comes to games that I think a lot of developers definitely overlook it and I think that's a problem for indies I think indies are starting to realize how important marketing is now but um, a lot of indies will blow it off being like well it's not contributing to the, the code it's not contributing to my game like I will worry about that when my game is done because they don't see how it helps the game you know I mean they do but like it they don't see like how much work it takes to actually like make some buzz around the game so uh, I think that well, having this hat now, it's just like, oh man, there's so much work that goes into marketing now. I definitely have much more appreciation of people who do that because it's very hard and very difficult. <laughs> Interesting. Actually, how did you become a game developer and why? Um, I kind of stumbled across it in art school. So I, I went to school a while ago. I've been in the industry for about 10 years now. And I wanted to do um, I wanted to do ceramics and then I discovered flash which at the time was like owned by macromedia so like director was a thing and like hypercard was a thing and <laughs> and like uh, I realized that I could do my own mist which was like one of my favorite games growing up was mist and I realized mist was done in hypercard and I was super excited so I got a copy of hypercard and I tried to make my own mists which were terrible but regardless I had a lot of fun making them and then I found flash and I was like oh this is like hypercard but like for real <laughs> and uh, I really just loved it and then I started making games and here I am. Uh, Mist, are you are you referring to the 1993 game? Yeah, uh, yeah the first ah, one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, see. But, but that was, I thought, always thought that, that was done in QuickTime or something. They used QuickTime video but it was compiled with HyperCard. Okay, interesting, interesting. Of course, it was one of those early games that worked and that were released for Macintosh and and Windows actually. Yeah, because HyperCard allowed you to port between the two pretty easily. It was sort of like the unity of its day, which <laughs> is kind of crazy to think about because it was basically like screens, and then you would have like go to next screen commandments. I mean, it was like basically it. It was, but it was great. Yeah, it's interesting because. Uh, at least in German press, it re um, it received a lot of bad reviews for being boring, you know, and oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, you know, a uh, lonely world and uh, pretty yeah. static and so on, you know. But oh. but people loved it, you know. It became a success. So. I think it was pretty successful here. There was a lot of good reviews in the U.S. about it, at least if I could recall. Maybe that's just because after it was a big hit, people started to like it. I don't know, maybe when it came out, people were like, what is this? I don't know. But uh, I didn't know much about games, and someone had bought it for me, and I just fell in love with it. So. 
Okay, okay. That's interesting. I think it would have been so successful that they made like five successors or something. Yes, but uh, so this was actually the first time that I realized I couldn't do first-person views. So I could play Mist 1 and 2 fine, and then I think Mist 3, they actually did real 3D. And that was, I couldn't play it because I got so dizzy. And it was my first, like, time realizing that, like, I can't really play first-person view games, which sucks because I love Call of, I, I used to play a lot of Call of Duty, but I could only play for about 30 minutes. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. I got really nauseous. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was, like, first warning of that being a problem for me. Oh, so, so Mist actually made you a gamer? Yes, Mist made me a gamer. Okay, interesting. So, and did you actually got it when it was released? I think I got it in 96, because I didn't have a computer until 96. I see. So ah. But anyway, you were a little child. Um, it was like 14. Yeah, wow, well, <laughs> teenager. Something around teenager. There, yeah. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. And do you still play nowadays? I do. I don't play as much as I'd like to, but I do play. Um, currently, I'm playing Snakebird on Steam, which is a really cute puzzle game, but it's very hard and it's really great. Um, and on the phone, there's this game called Subara City. Which looks like a really crappy casual game, but it's a brilliant strategy game. It's amazing. It's like this really uh, well done collapse game, but that involves a lot of strategy. But it's also very simple. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty addicted to that right now. And if you didn't get sick, you would play more um, first person shooters? Um, yeah, or Portal. <laughs> like, I've never. I've watched somebody play Portal, but I've never actually played Portal. That's that those are like or um, super hot, which I think is coming out in December. Like I would love to play that game, but I probably I probably would try to like sit through and 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 get through the puzzles. But but that's like yeah, it's a problem for me, which is, stinks because these are like great games. So okay, uh, that's the first time I'm I'm hearing that somebody gets sick playing the games you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kind well, of Oculus unfortunate. Is even worse, so I have to stay pa away from Oculus. What is what is worse? Oh, Oculus Rift. Ah. Yeah. Oh yeah, three D, three D, virtual reality games are even worse. If they're if they're mapped to a location, um, then they're fine. But if the camera moves um, with not my head, then it's it's really bad. Oh, okay. Which stinks because there's also a lot of cool games coming out for Oculus Rift. So. Maybe the doctor can do something about it, or rather not. Eh, whatever. I'll just. I'll, there's tons of games. I have so many in my backlog. I'm. I'm fine. <laughs> okay. So your favorite games are puzzle games like Myst or adventure games, and uh, I also shooter have games. Another one. Heroes okay. Two: Might and Magic. Also came out in '92, I think. I love that game to death, and I love it better than all of the other Heroes of Might and Magic. Which I don't know why. I think because it's like pixel art, and they went to like 3D, and I don't know something. There's something really cute about the pixel art and the animations that I love. So, if I'm not mistaken, it's an RPG yep. game. Ah, yeah. Right, right, right. So. So, uh, 
do you have any plans for the next game projects in that field maybe? Um, I think we're just focused on mushrooms so much that we haven't thought too much about the next game. Um, but I'm sure we'll come up with something cool. But we're le le definitely looking forward to working on to another game. Uh, looking forward? Looking forward to going on to another game. Yeah, we've worked so much on this one. It's It's been great, but I think we'll probably be excited to think about the next one. But we don't have any ideas yet. So if you had to describe Mushroom, in what genre it would most likely go to? That's a good question because I would probably say platformer, but it's not a platformer because you don't jump. So yeah, I think it's a new genre. <laughs> but but I, if I had to pick one, I'd probably do platformer. I mean, there are a lot of puzzle elements to it as well. I guess you could say puzzle platformer, but I, again, it's like a weird genre where you don't jump or move or run, so. Which is pretty interesting because I, I always thought in like uh, 40 years of video games, you, you already had everything that was possible. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably lots of other ideas that will come up too. You know, and people will be like, "Oh, why didn't that happen like ten years ago?" <laughs> that idea is so great. How come nobody thought of that one? So there's lots of stuff going on. I'm sure we'll always think of something new and cool to do. So you're actually making your dream job. You wouldn't like to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's definitely fun, especially seeing people play the game and enjoying the game. That's the best part. Interesting, and um, so is is the game almost done? I think I think I've read on Steam actually that you that you are close to releasing the game actually. Yep, it's it's almost done. We're just doing uh, audio and bug fixing, and um, we're hoping to release it in October, which is coming up very soon. <laughs> so, yeah. So in, within the next four weeks. Uh, more than four weeks, sometime in October, not very early October. I see, I see. Like so, <laughs> so, right, so right before Christmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How long did you actually spend on de developing the game? That's what really interests me. Uh, so Ty's been working on it for almost four years, so uh, the Game Jam was... 2012 in January, and he's been working on it pretty much ever since. Um, so it's been a while, but the team is very small. So, <laughs> um, but but that doesn't mean that the game can be played through in half an hour. Oh, how long the game is? I thought you said how long it took to develop it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but yeah, like I said, oh. um, I mean, I was just trying to make a connection. As you oh. said, it took so long because there are not many people involved. That would would mean if the game was bigger, it would even take more time to develop it. Yeah. So, but but I'm I'm just trying to 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 find out. It's still it's still a game that would keep you behind the monitor or on the touch screen for a couple of hours. Yeah. 
I think uh, we have a closed beta and um, the players are going through all the content now and it's taking between six to eight hours to complete the game. So you can actually have a nice day. <laughs> you can sit down all day and, and play it. Yeah, it, it's hard to predict exactly how long because some people will uh, you know, be slower at certain parts than other people. So. I'm totally a bad player. I would probably take <laughs> weeks or something. Yeah. And then, of course, there's people who love speedrunning it, and then they just replay chapter one over and over again for like four hours. <laughs> so it's, uh, it depends on people's playing. If they just want to sit down, just play through it, get through all the content, it'd probably be around eight hours. If they want to like go through it, pick up all the bugs, it'd probably be much longer. And then, of course, speedrunning it is like people can do that for however long they want. <laughs> so, how many chapters do you have actually? We have seven chapters. Okay. So it's, it's like it's like a history, um, as we mentioned, like a book you read and you mention the stuff. Yeah, so there's a different area in the world too. So the backgrounds are all different, and then it introduces a different element. So again, you don't ever change size or mass, you're always the same, but the environment changes. So uh, like for example, in chapter two, we introduce acid, which if you touch it will spread like a cancer in you and you have to delete all of the acid before it totally consumes you. Ooh. Uh, so there's like all these different elements that we introduce in each of the chapters um, that are new and that like make you think about the mushroom in a different way. Wow. What other elements you have there? I mean, that acid sounds pretty, pretty special. I mean, in the way, in the way it reacts. So, anything, anything else you have, you have there? We have a bunch. Um, in chapter three, we have water, which doesn't seem like it's, you know, that exciting. But the mushroom is buoyant, so you can actually uh, have interesting forces where you can launch yourself in the air by cutting yourself down small, uh, putting yourself down far underwater, and then like letting go, and then the mushroom just goes whoop, so you can launch yourself, um, so that's interesting. And then of course you interact with different things like other floating objects that you can kind of control and move, um, and other items as well. So yeah, each chapter introduces something new. So um, if I remember correctly, the press release was like chapter one? Mm -hmm. Or part of chapter one? It's all of chapter one. Um, so the other chapters will be even more exciting. Yes, the cha the first chapter is our tutorial chapter, and it's by far the shortest. Uh, and it just sort of teaches people how to move properly, so that by the time they get to chapter two, they don't have to think about like how your mushroom moves. It's very instinctive. That reminds me a bit of of um, lemmings. In a, in a way, for some reason, where you also have different kind of um, skills and stuff, and you have to use them to find your way through to the exit, kind of. Um, yeah, I like that. <laughs> interesting. But instead of having uh, characters with different skills that you can apply to, you have those objects, objects that you have to work with and yeah. the environment. So. Um, in Mushroom 11, you, you play a lot with the environment. Environment is part of the gameplay, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't just look nice, but it's 
also a part of, of the gameplay. Yeah. Okay, so I understood it. It's, it's, it's good, yeah. I mean, I mean, my first impression was like, oh, what is that? That is, like, that looks interesting. That looks a bit crazy, you know. Um, you know, because you always learn, like, a reason something is bad, but then you actually have to destroy all your your mushroom almost too. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, to, it's to funny that um, there's a point in chapter one where people get really scared about the fireballs that fall from this pit in the tunnel. And it, the funny thing is like, they, they have this idea that like that's super harmful, but they don't realize that they are doing basically the same thing as a fireball. Like, they're constantly killing themselves, so the fireball is actually not as dangerous as it looks. You just need to get, you know, your mushroom through to the other side, and then when the fireball hits you, it just splits you like you would split yourself. Um, but it's really cool, like, to see people being like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> um, yes, so where, where can people find out more about, about Mushroom 11? Um, we have our website, which is mushroom11.com, which has info on it. And then we also have a Steam page, so they can find that Mushroom 11 on Steam. And I guess you are also on Twitter and other places? Yep, yep. Uh, Untamed Games is our Twitter handle, and we use the hashtag Mushroom11 to talk about the game. Okay. Um, so you said you said you don't have any future projects in mind right now so you are just working on completing that game does it have a kind of open ending so you can make a successor or is that not your goal to make it like a part two of the game actually i don't know we'll see how it does <laughs> first is first is um <clears throat> getting it to desktop and then it's getting it to tablets And that'll probably take another, you know, six months or so. So we have lots of work still left to do for the game. But your next game, I guess, will be something totally different. Maybe. <laughs> so um, have you been working on um, transforming games to mobile platforms before? Um, yes, in my old studio, we did a lot of Facebook games and then we ported them to mobile um and it's it's definitely challenging to to do right because a desktop is or even facebook is much different platform than than mobile is and it's really hard specifically to do platformers i think on mobile because like how how are you how do you do the controls like how do you make it so you're not blocking like important information with your hand or your fingers it's very challenging to get it um to work good so. so we have some experience in that already. Yeah. But as I said, you are more on focusing on the design. You don't. You, you didn't really write a line of code on there. Um. So there is this Android game console Ouya or something. I think it was called. Oh right, yeah. Yeah. Ouya. Are you are you planning to to do something on that as well, or is that a Two less supported platform. I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. Because uh, that has regular controllers, right? For, exactly. For yeah. And actually, you can yes. you can connect controllers to an Android phone, 
or to even to an iPhone. I mean, I saw Logitech releasing such controllers or uh, other companies too. But so con controllers don't necessarily work well with the game because it's like hard to move the cursor with the joystick, um, and it doesn't feel quite as natural as just using a stylus or your mouse. So that's kind of problematic. But or your um, finger. Or your or your finger, yeah. Uh, with your finger, you have like the rest of your hand that's attached to your finger, <laughs> which is something you have to think about when you're making content. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess we're gonna try to get the game out to wherever feels good. Like if it works on, you know, tablets, or if it, if it works on, I don't know, whatever consoles, then we'll bring it there. But if it doesn't feel good, then then it doesn't make sense. So. So yeah, so that's really an aspect you have to take into account when you port it to mobiles like, or to to tablets. I mean, you can't tell people like this is only for people with small hands, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Very skinny fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. So you don't really hide a lot of the play field. Yeah. Um, on on the other hand. Seriously, I still I still prefer having a joystick or a gamepad in a way, and um, especially for racing games, it I had to I had to really get used to to control my steering wheel with a finger or something. Yeah, yeah, it just yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't transition as well as you would think. Like like when sometimes when you're making a game and you haven't tested it with mobile, it's just like oh sure people use their finger for the steering wheel and then. You port it and then you show people and they hold the phone totally different and they're like moving the wheel in a way you didn't expect. Like things that like that happen with mobile all the time that it's hard to plan for when you are developing it on a desktop or or online or something. But I think with Mushroom Eleven you won't have such problems. You already put that in mind when you when you hopefully designed the levels in the first place. Yeah, we'll do a lot of testing. Like we've done a lot of user testing so far to make the game work for people, um, and we'll probably do just as much user testing when we port it, so we know what what people are doing and we can like respond to that. Great, great. So you actually you're actually looking for uh, feedback from the community. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why we go to a lot of shows too. We go to you know expos like Gamescom not only to get the word out about our game but also to learn about how people react and where they struggling in the game and how to make the puzzles better. So it's not about uh, testing how how stress resistant you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, well, so this this were all my questions so far, and we have spoken one hour now. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of time. Yeah. So I hope we stay in touch and actually um I saw on Steam you can pre order the game. I did that already. Oh cool, thanks. Yeah, yeah you can get the one level build then. Um but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have the game soon and I'll be sure to give you a review copy when we when we finally get the audio in. That's actually the biggest part right now. <laughs> huh? Right? Uh, I mean, to get the audio in is the biggest part right now. <laughs> yeah, the audio and bugs. Uh, okay. But, but 
Um, aside from that, I learned, I learned that that you ha always have bugs in a in a, yeah. in a product. Always, we probably have bugs, but we try to smash as many as we can before we go before we go live. <laughs> I I heard something like if you have ten 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 mistakes or errors in thousands lines of code, then you are considered bug free or something. Oh. Well, <laughs> it depends on how many people see the bug and how annoying it is for them. That's more important. <laughs> uh, interesting question. How about um, gameplay bugs? So you make you have to make sure that you don't get stuck in the game. Or can you actually get stuck in the game at some point? Can you get stuck in the game? No, because you either die and you respawn or you just continue to move on. Okay. There's no real way where you get stuck. Okay. Or there shouldn't be. If you do get stuck, that's a bug and that needs to be fixed. So, but okay. we haven't had any problems with that yet. So. Yeah. No I, I don't know, know how that even works. I mean, if you have something like an update mecha mechanism in indie games, or I, 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 you, you are just, you are just um, distributing it over Steam and uh, G -O -G -O -G or something. So that's mm -hmm. how it prompts. So you automatically get updates, something like that, over yes, Steam. Actually. Yeah. So we will have updates. So like for example, uh, the languages. Like it's going to just be English first, and then in a month or so, we'll we'll update it with with languages, so you can you know have it in German or have it in. Japanese or have it in some indigenous American language um, so so yeah so things like that will be updating and I'm sure that there will probably be bugs we won't be able to find and we'll continue to update as we fix them but it's a single-player game and there's no multiplayer in it yeah there's no multiplayer it's just single-player so we don't have to worry about that <laughs> don't have to worry about uh, waiting for people to join or any kind of multiplayer you know latency issues it's just single-player <laughs> and as you said you're using unity um, it will work on newer Windows versions too if when they are uh, coming out I don't think, so. think we've tested it for Windows 10 yet so I'll be sure that we get somebody to give it a go um, but I don't think that there should be problems with it oh you don't have any testers using Windows 10 not that I know of. Actually, that's probably not true. We might have some testers using Windows 10. But, I mean, it's a fairly new operating system, right? I mean, it just came out... A month ago. ago. Yeah. A month, a month ago. Yeah. I installed it uh, four days before Gamescom. Four days before Gamescom. Wow. Yeah. And then, then, then my touchpad didn't work. It was automatically clicking all the time. And I had to fix the laptop because I needed that for games count. I had to figure out a way how to make it stop that. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, actually I'm a I'm a software tester uh, for for a living, so I know how hard how hard that job is. Yeah. But but for um, for medical software, not for video games. Yeah. Well, that's even harder because if you mess up for medical software, you could actually hurt somebody. Whereas a video game, you just tick people off. <laughs> that's, that's actually true, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> that's even much more stressful than video yeah. game testing.
Though this was Julia. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was that was nice. Yeah. So what <laughs> did we learn? Yeah. So that was Jorg's interview with, with, with Julia. That was very interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool glasses. Mm. I can see even less now because I got glare and their, uh, their, uh, what do you call them? The, uh, what do you call these things? The, Men uh, in black. No, no, no. Um, God, I can't think of what the words are. These are, um, polarized. So it makes your screen, you just can't see the screen. It's just black. Okay. Hmm. All right, so this was very interesting. So what yes. we learned about the things going on behind the scenes for an indie game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Very fascinating. Indeed. And so when are we getting our demo version of this game? Well, I, I ordered the full version, so when oh, okay. it's released, I will actually get the full version. All the right, demo cool. version, the press demo, we already got. Oh. Yeah. So, mm. and it will be coming out in five days. Yes. Where and can you... people go and see this? Well, mushroom11.com. Did, did you say that in the interview? Sure. Oh. Mushroom11.com. Okay. Yeah. So okay, again, again, yeah, you can uh, if you want to check it out and you know order and, and whatever else you can go mushroom11.com. Yeah. And uh, and check that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can go to untame.com to have a look at the untame team thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. 